Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 494, with Rob Kaufman and Gabriel Malbagat. Do good, be good, and you're going to feel good. Are you ready for it? it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. What's sorcery? Sorcery is AP automation, digital invoicing, and time and money saved. That's sorcery. Sorcery allows you to streamline and digitize your entire accounts payable operation. Digital invoicing backed with human verification will save you countless hours of work and increase AP accuracy. Say goodbye to your file cabinets and enter the digital world. Go to GetSorcery.com. That's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com or call 1-866-830-0691. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you will receive 10% off your first three months with no setup fees. There is no time to waste in the restaurant business, especially when an opportunity comes up and you need extra capital. Cabbage created a simple, flexible way to get a line of credit of up to $150,000, apply online, and get a decision right away. Withdraw funds when you need them without reapplying. Cabbage has helped over 100,000 small businesses. Get started at cabbage.com slash unstoppable you can get a $50 gift card when you qualify that's cabbage with a k line of credit is subject to credit approval c terms and conditions all cabbage business loans are issued by celtic bank a utah chartered industrial bank member fdic with excitement allow me to introduce to you today's guests robert kaufman and gabriel Mabagat. guys are you feeling unstoppable today we're definitely feeling unstoppable (laughs) Yes, that is what we like to hear. So almost 10 years ago, co-founders Robert Kaufman and Gabriel Mabagat uh, started cooking and delivering food from their dorm room kitchen. Chef on Call was born. Since Chef on Call has grown into a quick service delivery restaurant phenom, they have grown their dorm room operation to 80 team members and over 200,000 successful deliveries. Chef on Call continues to expand, improve, and innovate in order to provide its customers the best service possible. So I can't wait to dive into your story, guys. Uh, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Okay, well, my s- mantra is do good, be good, and you're going to feel good. Yes. Do good, be good, and you're going to feel good. Is that Gabriel? That is Gabriel, yes. <laughs> Go ahead, Robert. What do you got for a mantra? And mine was always treat others the way you want to be treated. Nice. And I've seen, that, um, I've seen that work a lot within the restaurant business as well. Nice. This is a great way to get the conversation going. And uh, that, both of those resonated with me. But honestly, I got to say, Gabriel, uh, you're, we'll say it again. Do good, be good. When was the last part? Yeah, do good, be good, and you'll feel good. And you'll feel good. I I sign off all my emails with be well, do good. So uh, you're really hitting home. And it's obviously the golden rule, treat all others as if you were treating them yourself or I'm, I'm losing it. I don't know what the heck I totally screwed that one up, but um, maybe I'll edit that out. Who knows? <laughs> anyway, Let's dive into your story. Uh, let's uh, go back to where you guys met. It was in college. Yeah. 
For sure. Even before that, um, growing up, we never had any real restaurant experience, the both of us. Um, I started uh, watching my dad. He had his own business. He was actually shout out to him. It's his 60th birthday today. Happy birthday, Erwin. Nice. <laughs> and uh, he had his own business in the clothing industry. And I always grew up and saw that. I always wanted to do my own thing, too. And at the age of 14, um, I got a CD burner, which was like one of the first of the time back then. And I would walk into retail stores and I would hear that people weren't always happy with their music and they were buying these expensive CDs. So I, I started my own business where I made music for retail stores across Montreal. And uh, it took off pretty well. And then until people get, got their own CD burners, it fell through. And that was just an evolution of technology. Nice, but uh, you, you capitalized on that early technology right there. How old were you when you did this? Uh, Fourteen years old. Okay, nice. Uh, so you got had a, you had that entrepreneur, entrepreneurial bug early on. That's it sounds exactly. Nice. But then it, it became lost with like the advancement in technology. So I, again, I had to look for the new thing to do, and there was always like that itch, an entrepreneurial itch. Um, so from there, we ended. I ended up doing a, a business that my dad got me in, which was security cameras, again, for retail locations. And uh, we worked closely with a franchise restaurant. Um, and what was good with that is I learned that every franchise had to buy the piece of equipment because they wanted to keep everything standardized. So that was something that was interesting to me. Uh, but I still hadn't thought about getting into the restaurant industry yet. And then... Um, we had some partnership issues with that industry. And again, I was left without a job, um, but I was still in university at the time. And while I was doing university on the side, I was in a promotion business that did uh, events and nightclubs around Montreal. And that's kind of how I came to meet uh, Gabriel. He was always, he had his own company as well. And he was always like, he stood out as a very strong hustle and motivated person. And, um, Luckily, actually, one time, I'll let Gabe take it over from there. Where he, he came by the, my apartment when we had first started Chef on Call in our apartment, and uh, he had to pick up some tickets because he already sold out of his first batch, so he was still on the hustle. Yeah, so to understand, I guess, um, how I got involved in Chef on Call, you got to understand that I wasn't actually from Montreal. I was, I'm from Toronto, okay. so... When I came to Montreal, I came here with three of my childhood best friends, and uh, we had had a plan as soon as we had arrived to come up with this company for throwing parties for university students and um, doing event production. And that was back in 2006, and I did that for about three years. And coming into our last year of school, I knew that my time in the business was kind of expiring. I wasn't going to be Van Wilde during it after I graduated. I didn't want to like, stay connected to that student market as uh, right into that uh, into throwing parties at least. So my mindset at the time was I knew Rob from event production. I'd see him out and about. He was always such a positive guy. He was always smiling. He was always the life of the party. And I heard through the grapevine that he was coming out with this food delivery service and uh, my friends and I uh, we immediately recognized how that business would succeed in our uh, small little market here in Montreal and I yeah so as you said I went to his house and one day I he opened the door and 
this is the scene I'm seeing. I'm seeing um, two college kids just on the couch, probably studying. Um, I'm seeing one of other one other of Rob's friends on the couch, and they had like a flip phone, one of those burner flip phones that you would see in the Wire series. <laughs> and he had another guy in the kitchen in a full chef outfit. I'm talking head to toe. And the first three words I heard when I entered his house was the phone rang and his friend Jackie picked up and said, chef on call. How may I help you? And I looked at Rob and I said, what is going on here? Um, And immediately I just kind of told him I wanted to take care of the marketing part of this business. And I was lucky enough to have a pretty strong brand backing me. Um, And that night I ran home and I called up that burner flip phone and I ordered about four burgers for my friends and I. And 25 minutes later, Rob's at the door with the cake box, the checkered wax paper and the garlic mayo dipping sauce and a couple burgers and fries. Man. So let me first ask, you said that you saw how Chef on Call would succeed. So what was your thought when you first had this idea of I need to approach Rob to uh, see how or to explain how I I know this will succeed? Well, for one, I lived in a house with six other guys and we kind of shared the same experience in the sense that we were always ordering either like Domino's pizza or like the local Greek spot that was open until 2 a.m. So, and every time that we would order, my friends and I, at least one person would throw their food out and say how shitty it was. You know what I mean? (laughs) So, um, we all kind of talked about what we were going to be doing after um, university and my three other childhood friends, like one of them wanted to stay with the um, company that we created and another one wanted to go off to New York and uh, another one wanted to start a a music advertisement startup. So we kind of just fell into our careers in a sense. Um, Once I had shown and proven to Rob that we would be bringing financing forward for the first operation, um, we kind of just got along right off the bat. And um, I knew that I, I didn't know what the, a restaurant took at the time. We had no idea. We'd, I'd never worked a restaurant uh, in a restaurant once in my life as well. So, yeah, we just, I think that I realized when I met his apartment and he's getting 30 calls in that one night, I knew that right away that there was other students in this tiny little Montreal market that were going to kind of order from this service. And I guess you got to understand how Montreal is laid out to understand why Chef on Call is successful. Um, Montreal is a city that's, you know, it's, it's got such a rich history to it. There's so much culture um, and it's a beautiful landscape. And you have one of the most prestigious universities in all of Canada smack down in the heart of downtown Montreal. And in that little pocket its economy is driven by all the students, whether it's nightlife or restaurants. Um, And right away, we knew just from living in this tiny little student ghetto, in a sense, that there was room for a new food service to come in and and serve a top-notch product. 
So what you, you currently you had bars, you had restaurants. What was wrong with these restaurants? Was it the quality? Was it too expensive? Well, we, didn't, we didn't actually have bars. We were both um, working side by side with different nightclubs that wouldn't serve food. And, and we would yeah. um, kind of like sell tickets and then get percentage of the bar. It was a rudimentary business. We would, we would bring in out of town DJs. Um, we brought in like the likes of Steve Aoki at the time. Or, so this know, was your previous business. Yes, this was the previous business, and that's how we ended up meeting through event production. Okay. So yeah. I'm curious, Rob, at what point, how, how much time elapsed from when you started doing Chef on Call from your kitchen, your dorm room kitchen, to when Gabe came in and said, I got to be a part of this? How much time elapsed there? So I'll give you a little history, I guess, about the, the kitchen when we started. Um, I had uh, a friend who we, I was in a fraternity at the time, and again, Everyone in the fraternity would order food. We were in downtown Montreal. And again, like Gabe said, most of the people would, like, they would still order the food, but they wouldn't enjoy it. And one of our friends was actually uh, a chef at Cordon Bleu, which is a very prestigious chef school. And, and when he would cook for everyone, everyone loved the food. So we got him on board at the very beginning. And the three other partners also had no restaurant experience at the time. So he was the only one really with the restaurant experience. And we worked with all like the household equipment that was that was used in the apartment, and we bought one of those portable deep fryers that you get like at Walmart for like forty dollars. <laughs> and we were pretty much running everything off these kitchen, these small kitchen appliances. And Gabe pretty much came to us within the first week of of us um, of us operating. And even at that time, we were blowing fuses left and right. And that's when Gabe <laughs> came and said, "Okay, let's do this for real, and let's look for a real commercial location because we got some money behind us." through our event company and, and let's make it happen like for real. Yeah. I think so, I knew, yeah, I knew right away that I needed something to do after I was finishing university. I had a double major in political science and history. Okay. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious. I want to go deeper into the details here. When you started this, Rob, uh, I mean, it sounds like it was a pretty shoestring budget, pretty low budget yeah, to get exactly. started, which is very, very shoestring. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to see, I guess, if the concept would, would take off without like even any advertising. Um, so how I'm curious, how did it take off? Take me to day one, the, the first yeah. day, like, let's let's start do, doing this now. Like, how did you get the word out? So day one, I mean, because we already were in the scene with um, these events, we pretty much just put it out through that channel. And would hope, like, people have said because they knew us, like, we'll order once, and if we don't like it, we won't order again. But if we do like it, then, hey, why yeah. not? And and they did like it. So that's how it immediately snowballed. And people would spread the word to the point where we just said, okay, we can't keep blowing fuses every night in this in this apartment kitchen. And with Gabe, especially with his separate connections, we knew that it would, if not, explode after that. Yeah. So, we, we were really ingrained in the student community when we first started this. So getting the word out to the influencers at the time, it was not a difficult situation. So wait, let's go back over that. You said get the, I think what you guys did on a small scale can be also applied to a larger scale. So you said get the word out to the influencers. Was this very intentional? Did you go to the, the cool kids, quote unquote, and say, hey, well, look what we're doing? I don't want to tires or anything, but we were the cool kids. Oh, uh, okay. I see. parties and whatnot. So like people... You were connected. You, were, you had a decent network at the time, it sounds like. Exactly. And, and me being from Toronto, I was able to capitalize uh, on the out-of-town students that came to Montreal. And since Rob was born here, he had a local network. So we kind of just combined both our networks at the time. Okay, cool. So something else I want to go into, um, I don't want to make assumptions, 
but I'm assuming everything that you did in the first week was completely illegal. Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, what was your plan? I'm curious. Did you just want to test the concept? Did you know this was going to be temporary? Like take me through what was going through your mind, knowing that you didn't have any impairments, knowing that you probably weren't an established LLC or corporate, like what was going through your mind? I guess the inspiration before was uh, a restaurant called Shea Cora, which I, I don't know. We had it in Montreal. It's a very popular breakfast spot. And the girl who created it also started from her apartment. So I wanted to see, okay, let's get that test out there where we because it costs tons of money to open a restaurant. We didn't have that at the time. So we just need to know if the concept worked before we made a real commitment towards it. And it is illegal, but at the same time, it was mostly for our friends. Like, we didn't advertise it to outsiders, and it was only people that we knew from our events. And they all loved the food. So, And they continued to order because they all live downtown. And they weren't doing it just to order to be nice. Like, they actually liked the food. So we knew that if we got the word out there to real people, to other people that weren't in our network, that hopefully they would continue to share the word and continue that word of mouth spread that we had before. No, I love it. And I want to point something out. Just the, the significance of market research and starting where you can. So often people have this idea and they're convinced it's going to work and they get loans and they start and there's crickets. Yeah. Uh, but what you guys did is so smart in the sense that you you started where you could. And you just started and you started with your friends and you started in your, you know, in your kitchen. And he's like, you know, do we have something here? Is, is our idea something that is actually something like that, that our people, that, that our market wants and you, you figured it out. They do want this. And from there you slowly started to scale. And I think that that approach that that lean startup is so valuable. And you guys had the benefit of being college students. So if anything were to happen, the worst thing would have been probably a slap on the wrist, you know, like, Oh, you can't do that. But you, you know, or, or like the, uh, apartment kitchen could have just burned out. Yeah. <laughs> Insurance, you know, it's cool. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I think that we tested the market out for about three weeks out of the apartment. And then as we had said, the kitchen literally almost burned down because we were getting too many orders. Um, so we had to reevaluate and we took a look around the student um, concentrated area and we were able to find like a very small Location, So it was basically an extension from our student apartment kitchen to this walk down 555 square foot basement location. And so it was in the same yeah. building. Pardon me? It was in the same building. No, no. no. So this was, uh, it was just a building two that was about yeah, two blocks away. Okay. And we had to convince the landlord to give us a two year lease. Uh, at the time, he really did not want to rent us the space. It was just like a showroom for his apartment buildings. Um, and yeah, we actually wait. So you we went from to, one apartment to another apartment. No, it was it was a walk right that first very first like commercial location we got before we had moved in. They were using it as a showroom to show their uh, apartment buildings that they had available in their in the in the building. So so it, it wasn't like a mock apartment. It was like apartment with like pictures of, or it was a room with pictures of apartments. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, was this a commercial space? It was a commercial space. Yeah, there was. It was a mix of apartments, and there had three other restaurants uh, below the apartments, so we knew that we wouldn't be able to put a restaurant in that location. Okay, uh, and it was I, really small. Like at the beginning, we were really only going to focus on delivery, so we didn't think any customers would actually come to the location because of a chef on call. Did you uh, have uh, actual customers coming to, to dine in? Was that something that was an issue for you? 
it took it took about um, one second. Let me just close this right here. It took about um, like a couple of days just to get people to walk in. We had enough seats to fit eight people in there. Okay, so what was that like? Four seats, four tables. Yeah. We had no, we had one picnic bench that had four seats, and then we built out two bars on either side of the restaurant that had um, two seats, two seats each. Nice. So, but that's, we, not, that's smart, though. You knew you were feeding, a, you know, you were going after a niche. You were going after a, a specific market, which was takeout, and you were going to own that market because nobody was doing it well. Correct. So, I mean, that that approach, you know, knowing exactly who you are and what you're doing is smart, and you know, not trying to tr- serve too many people early on. I think that was a really good approach. I mean, it was a good approach. We definitely made some mistakes, obviously, that naturally when you're opening up a business. Um, what we, were some of those mistakes? Well, just in general, like for construction at this spot, we literally used the maintenance guy that would come to Rob's apartment to fix like the heater. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. We didn't have like a network of construction contacts to build us or, en- or even get an interior designer and engineer to do any of the above um so when we went in we set up the small kitchen we lined it with a a four burner range oven we lined it with a 24 inch grill uh one deep fryer and like as many residential fridges as you could possibly buy off kijiji or credits (laughs) yeah um and we also had like a fairy we had a pirated version of of some pos system that we downloaded onto our 200 10 inch laptop um and we got rid of that flip phone I mentioned before, and we opened up an actual landline for people to call us. <laughs> okay, so really dive into how these mistakes hurt you. Like, were they, or were any so, of these mistakes to the point where you almost weren't able to recover? Yeah, not not almost not able to recover, but because we chose such a small location at five hundred and fifty square feet, and we used so much equipment that was either secondhand or bought off Kijiji, like fridges and stuff, we had such a limited budget to start. We didn't get no banks were giving out money to restaurants that had never been open before. And um, friends and family were still very skeptical, even though we had the success in the apartment. They've seen so many other of their friends fail in, in restaurant startups before. So in total, we, with all, we actually had eight partners at the time. Between all of us, we were able to get up $80,000. And with that money, we were able to open the first restaurant. But some of those challenges were getting that cheap equipment. Um, within the first week, our range actually caught on fire, which we discovered because the, the person just painted over it and left wet paint inside the interior. So we basically, on top of uh, opening the restaurant, we also got scammed on like half the equipment that we purchased at that time. Oh, man. Um, so I'm curious, um, Gabe, you said that when you came on board, you wanted to market this thing and like you guys, you, you sounded like you were very early on. Uh, you all had your lanes. So how did you go through? Was there like written, uh, I guess what's the word, uh, job titles or how, how did you break up the work and how did you guys know where to stay into your lanes? Well, for one, I was, I was blessed enough to get, to be taught from my other three other childhood friends, like how to really build a brand and how to market it. So naturally I kind of fell into that part of the business, but at the very beginning, like we had one chef and basically everybody else was just front of house support. Um, and, uh, once we got the location up and running, we kind of applied the same marketing techniques that we applied for our event production business. We literally 
just went after like it was like a guerrilla tactic grassroots marketing campaign. Um, when we're talking about breaking laws, like we were sneaking into apartment buildings, like sketch bags at like two in the morning and putting menus underneath every single door in every mailbox. If they didn't have a mailbox and we couldn't put it underneath their door, we would put a menu in, with blue sticky tack, like right against their door. We contacted our friends, little brothers to drop off menus and spread them around all the student residences. We went to every single hotel concierge within our designated delivery market, offering them free food just in hopes that they would be referring business to us. Um, we really just looked at what our hours were in the business and thought of anyone we could be that would be, be perceived as a customer. We went to strip clubs, to rub and tucks, to bars, to other restaurants, to um, hospitals, to police stations, really to any, any um, place of business that could be turned into a, a customer. Um, so how so, I'm curious, how many menus total would you say you printed out during this, this time of just getting yeah. your word out? That first week, we we had a, a pretty good contact from all the event production flyers that we were printing off. Yeah. So we printed off the 12,000 menus, just uh, single unit menus. And How many we, of them did you get rid of in that first week? Every menu. That was a huge mistake because we didn't know how to run the operations. So, oh, man. So <laughs> you had too many people interested is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And um, we really like the operating team at the time, we, we didn't know what we were, we were doing in a sense. We were, it was a huge learning curve. Um, and I guess within the business too, like we had one chef and then everyone else was front of house support, like I said. So we um, were very, very vulnerable in a sense in the kitchen because at any point, you know, um, with that first chef we had, we ended up having to part ways with him after that very first like four months of operating just because we didn't see eye to eye on everything. And at that time, we were kind of chefless and we had this business and we didn't have a chef. We, we had a, a very um, uh, not well thought out menu yet. We just knew that we had a demographic to serve and they were waiting and they were hungry. And we just needed to come up with a couple new menu items to really um, capitalize on that delivery market. So you, you had a menu, you had the chef, you had all this stuff and you, your thought process was you need new menu items. No, what happened was that with our old chefs, because he was from Cordon Bleu, he would incorporate very high end ingredients like foie gras and like lobster pasta, which wasn't totally our vision at the time. We wanted more of like homemade, fresh burgers, homemade, fresh chicken tenders, um, homemade sauces. Like your typical takeout food, but from scratch. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, yeah, I think in the beginning, what I was trying to say was we were coming out with a menu that wasn't necessarily delivery friendly. Okay. Um, you have to re- like with our menu now, it's very well thought out in the sense that every item on our menu is going to be delivered within 40 minutes and still hold proper. When you first started, you, you you know, first kudos on that gorilla approach of marketing and just getting the word out. Maybe wait a couple of weeks if you're listening to this after you've opened to work out your systems, processes, procedures. And so yeah, you can be yeah. ready to absorb that kind of business. But yeah, people will just say, oh, I don't understand why we're not getting business. I mean, you don't 
you got to work for it. You got to put the word out there. You got to, I mean, today it's easier with social media, but even I, I think when you're first getting started, getting those brochures, getting those menus and, and being a face, you know, like introducing yourself, spending hours, weeks getting out there and just meeting the people in your community is so powerful. Uh, and then you said that you kind of was a mistake because you had this rush of business um, and you didn't have your systems down. So take me through what, what that process of getting your systems down looked like. How did you guys get organized like what what advice do you have for for that topic well for getting organized obviously help like standardizing your menu uh coming out with the proper protocols and methods and really making sure that every time uh, we're cooking our dishes that it's got a consistent output to it um we tried our best to standardize the menu in that first uh month of opening um and you know, we had a pretty good month in April because it was exam season and we were able to capitalize on all the students who were up late studying. Um, so right after April, we quickly realized that about 80% of our market was leaving town. Uh, it was all McGill students and they all went back home to Toronto or to um, other places that they live. So we hit May and we were about 80% less in sales. So we went from having a very strong April to all of a sudden, like going down to waiting for orders for three hours at the restaurant. So what happened during this this slow time? Is this one kind of when you locked in your systems and made use of, okay, we're not getting slammed. Let's, let's, let's tighten the ship up. Um, yeah, basically. Yeah. We even, um, decided because we, we did the numbers to close during those months. and, And like you said, get dish by dish, down pat in the April because it was so busy, um, which even till today, April is always our busiest month because uh, it's exam time. And a lot of the students want to order food uh, before they leave as well. They don't want to stop their kitchen up. So in April, um, for example, some of the cooks that we had hired when it got too busy, one of them actually like they left through the back door in the middle of a huge rush. So Gabe and I had to get on the line and learn quickly our menu when we've never worked like a day in the kitchen before. And that was when we realized, okay, we need to get every dish down pat and right out um, step-by-step how to make everything. So if that does happen again in the future, we're able to, to be in there, even though it may take us a little longer, at least we can get the food out mm. and not have the customer not be able to order. Yeah, so was this instinct or did you read this someplace? How did you know to do that? I think it was just instinct, to be honest. I mean, um, we knew, like myself, I had residential kitchen cooking skills. My father had taught me, you know, how to make a salad and Mm. how to cook chicken and and use frying pans and how to uh, clean the dishes at night. So it's not like I knew exactly how to run a commercial kitchen, but um, when I, and and if you had seen me in there, it would have been a tornado. (laughs) We realized immediately that Rob and Gabe were not meant to be in the kitchen. So we had to um, do what any business people do they they put the proper teammates in place where they're going to complement your weaknesses and that's kind of what we did so i'm curious uh, you said that you started with eight partners is that did i hear that right yeah that's correct eight partners so we had a lot of how many partners do you have now it's only the two of us now. So I'm curious what happened. Uh, who were these partners? What, what lanes were they in? Was it, was your chef a partner in the beginning? So the chef was a partner at the beginning, but um, 
like we had said before, we weren't seeing eye to eye on too many stuff because he was more of a high end chef and we wanted more of like late night greasy food for the, for the people that finished the clubs. And he was throwing in like foie gras and lobster and stuff. And it was fine, but it also didn't go with our, our price points. Like, and we wanted to keep our price points like affordable for students at the same time because that was our target market. Um, and we couldn't charge like $25 a meal, which is what we would have to charge with those dishes. So that was one aspect. And he understood because he also wanted to be in that industry where he cooked like the fancier dishes. Um, but the other partners all kind of had their own thing going on at the same time. Um, one of them actually was from Columbia. And, and when he just graduated school, when we opened in April, he took off and, and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to Columbia and I'm never coming back. So he ghosted us. <laughs> yeah. And this is after we signed all the, the shareholders agreements and everything. Um, not only that, we were approved. We, we had applied for a, a loan with an organization and we were approved for 50000 when we really needed that money at the beginning to build. And because that partner in Colombia was one of the signatures, he didn't want to sign on that loan because he was gone and he didn't know where the restaurant would be in the future. So because he didn't sign, we actually had to forgo that loan. Yeah, yeah we, 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 that was going to be our cushion that first summer to get us through. Um, but as soon as it was retracted, we basically had to start dipping into our credit cards and our student line of credits that we still had from university. So one of the chefs, he left because uh, it wasn't the right food, which makes sense. So that's one of your uh, partners. And the other five... Uh, five? Yeah, so one was in Columbia. Another one was already working. Uh, he was at a law firm. Um, and he was also, he didn't put in too much money at the beginning and, and also wasn't working the hours. Okay. We couldn't, I mean, like we needed operators and we didn't want to, so we ended up, it was tough to be honest, because we were all very close friends at the beginning. And even though they wanted to stay, it was either you got to put in the hours or we can't think it doesn't work like that. So I'm yeah. curious, I mean, I think, I think partnerships are a good thing. A lot of people will say, stay away from partnerships. If you had bad, you know, here's what I think about that. If you have bad experience with partners, um, maybe the, the issue isn't with the partnership or maybe it's with you. And, and I'm not saying that regarding you guys, uh, but I'm curious. It sounded like when you first started, uh, it, you had, it was the two of you plus the chef, right? So I'm curious, why did you bring on more partners? What do you feel like there was a need where you over, like what was going through your mind? Um, it's we, when we very, the business first started, we went into it knowing that we were going to have eight partners. Um, Rob had had his, the chef from Cordon Bleu as one of the partners, and he had his two other friends involved. And I was kind of the guy coming in with three other partners, saying that I wanted to handle the marketing. Okay. So when we teamed up, we, we had positions, and people were going to be responsible for certain departments of the business. One person was going to be the bookkeeper. Another, we were going to be handling the marketing. Rob was going to be the operations guy. We had our chef. Um, and then, you know, you start to actually – work and you get into the trenches when you're in your business and, and you really see who's going to be putting in the blood, sweat and tears that it takes. And I think in that first month of operating, we knew Rob and I's gut feeling off the bat. Like we weren't, we had known each other, but we weren't like as close as we were to obviously today. And I think that obviously helped because we went into this relationship with not being friends before we were going into it as business partners. And then we grew into becoming friends. Okay. So knowing what you know now, 
Um, would you have, have gone into business with as many partners or what would you have done differently uh, knowing what you know now? Well, it was definitely tough because without those partners in the beginning, we would never be where we are now. Um, it is a late night restaurant. We definitely did take shifts in terms of, because we're open seven days a week, most of those nights till four in the morning. So we did need kind of all eight of us to kind of participate at the beginning. Okay. We worked for free also. Um, none of us took salaries for the first few years even. But that's also where some of the partners kind of like didn't want to work there because they were already making a living on, like they all had separate jobs aside from this, except for Gabe and myself. Like we kind of put the promotion on the back end and everyone else continued to do their own thing. And I think they understood that after seeing that we were the only two kind of working in the restaurant. I mean, when you're working 16 to 18 hours a day and um, your partners are seeing that and they can't, they have their own um, things they're working on at the time. uh, It's kind of, it's, they're going to know like, all right, these guys are the guys who are going to be taking care of the operations. So I'm and then, curious. Uh, uh, I mean, it sounds like you guys handled this well, as far as the, the breaking up of the partnerships. Uh, w- I guess my advice is, or my, my question is uh, how do, how do you go about backpedaling out of those partnerships? How did you guys do it in a way that was very, uh, it sounds like it was, uh, I don't know the right word. I'm at a loss of words. What's yeah, we, at the end of the day, we, we calculated kind of how many hours they worked in the restaurant and we made a, a number per hour, which they felt would be reasonable. Yeah, I don't think that our story should set the benchmark for how you should start a business. Very, <laughs> yeah, No, but th- there's a lot of value in these stories and that's yeah. my job is to kind of pull back the layers and get at the core of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like you guys are crushing it now. You're doing great stuff now. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, partnerships are kind of one of those weird things, you know, like yeah, they can be great. And, um, um, you, I mean, we learned at the beginning, we all had a lot of energy. We knew that um, it was going to take a lot of manpower to get this off the ground. So we knew we needed a lot of support from all our friends, families, and all the partners involved. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, once we were able to kind of fall into our positions at the restaurant, um, we were able to see that we could, you know, take care of other uh, departments that our partners were supposed to be responsible at the time. So that's kind of why we made the decision to move forward. And um, it was a great decision. I mean, there's no hate with any of our other partners at all. And um, everybody's doing their own thing now and very successful. Awesome. So let's move it forward. Uh, we're, you, know, you guys have been in business almost 10 years now. So what were some of the, the next evolutionary parts for you guys as scaling, as you know, figuring this out and getting catching your stride and really becoming a fine tuned operation? Um, so with, when we reopened that first summer, um, we reopened when the students returned. And during that summer, we really worked on a pretty comprehensive marketing campaign of how we were going to hit up the students. And yeah, we reopened in August. We kind of reminded ourselves of how the operations should work. And then um, when September hit, we started doing, we started doing like, you know, 50 orders a night, 60 orders, and it just kept slowly growing. And every time we would break our record, we would be like, oh my God, how do we just do that? That was that was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's still going on today where we're beating like every month there's a new record basically. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, th- the things that we did in the first year was 
we were working in the business. And I always hear in your episodes how you're talking about, you know, all the operators working in the business, but at what point can you start working on the business? And for us, that only started to happen in our, in our third year. Actually, we were finally started. We were finally able to start working on the business. Um, so at that first, in the first two years, Rob and I just, we were there every single day. We were able to take care of all the issues that happened. Um, and we were able to get a sense of like exactly what we needed to do to improve the operation day by day. So I'm curious, how did you get, how did you go through that transition of working in the business to on the business? What key things had to happen for you to get to that point where you could redirect your energy and your focus? So we had to find someone that would be able to take that managerial role and handle all those issues that happens in a restaurant day to day. And luckily we found a few key members that were able to take over those roles. So these are people that were already in your restaurant that you, you identified and recognized. Yeah. Some of them we we identified and recognized and we brought them up. So we always wanted to keep like the employees within growing with us as well as we were growing. So they would feel more motivated and more in, like involved in the business. So we have three different um, parts of the business where we have the kitchen, we have our people that take the orders, which we call front of house staff, and then we have our drivers. So Gabe and I were handling pretty much all those positions at the time, but we felt it necessary to hire a manager for each field. And that's what really helped us to work on the business then instead of in the business. And those managers now are responsible for all those employees in their section. And they would report to us um, a lot less often than all the employees would report to at the same time. Yeah. So how did uh, you identify which manager to hire first? um, We were lucky enough to, you know, bring on students who are coming into their university careers in their first year, we brought them onto the business. So I think that what resonated with all the staff at the time was that it was such a new business and everybody wanted to see it succeed. You know what I mean? They wanted to see the business continue to grow because they were so involved in the growth at the beginning. Um, The location itself was, was, was riddled with issues. Like we were constantly having to um, increase the electricity at the spot because all our appliances were overloading the amps on it. Um, you know, our washroom would be breaking, the ceiling would be collapsing in the back. It wasn't insulated properly. So our prep team sometimes had to even wear winter jackets. It wasn't um, something that Rob and I would even be comfortable doing today. Like yeah. I so, <laughs> so eventually you move into another location and we'll get there. But when you were finding these partners or these these managers i think you know it's smart you're you're hiring freshmen right you know they're going to be there for four years uh you mold them but were you how did you prioritize which parts of the business i mean which part did you find a manager for for first was it the delivery the front of house or the back of house it was the kitchen because we knew we were so vulnerable in the kitchen okay Um, we were able to find uh actually the sous chef who worked with our original chef so he came into the head chef position and um, we worked with him for the for the next uh, year, I believe. So when you're looking to get these people on your team to find these managers, you, you're looking to replace yourself in the weakest points first. Correct. Exactly. And then yeah. what was next? How did you decide front of house or delivery? What was going on there? Well, at the time, um, Rob and I, we, we became the, quite the duo. We, we moved in together. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we spent like every single hour 
and Minute together for about like three years. So at any point, we were able to communicate with each other anything that was wrong with the business or anything that needed to be done with the business. So we were fully committed in that sense. Okay. Um, and, you know, once a year passed, two years passed, we were able to build up the right amount of sales to actually support having these managers come into play. Um, so in the first like two, three years, we were kind of just the jack of all trades in the, in the restaurant. We were, we had to support ourselves through taking deliveries and all the tips we made were able to give us enough to pay for rent at the time. Um, and then, yeah, when it came to the front of house staff, we just would kind of hire the right personalities, the personalities that fit and synergized with our types of personalities. Um, and once we were able to find those key team members, we started to grow the business from the outside. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that I was hoping you would touch on was the idea of cash flow, letting cash flow determine when you hire these managers on. Cause you need to do so much business. You need to have that, that, that volume to support the managers, right? So a lot of people, they might get the managers first and then be hemorrhaging money because their expenses are too high. You guys, you, sometimes you need to put in two or three years early on of working 16 hour days to get that cash flow to the point where you can start chipping slowly adding the people onto your team that you need to i think people maybe start too soon with uh i mean that's one of the benefits of starting a business when you're 23 years old too 22 years old you get the energy you can actually do it uh which is kind of a, a, a point to be pointed out uh the other thing that i love about this too is you guys chose to be the, the delivery drivers and i feel like most people would who are starting a business are usually in the skilled positions like whether, whether that's a chef or a front of house manager but you guys chose the, the the FaceTime with the the clients because in a delivery service operation, like that's the most high touch. Uh, they're, they're the face of your brand, right? Exactly. So, how do you think that impacted your business? We got to learn our, our clientele um, quite well. Uh, we really were able to come out with uh, a very uh, comprehensive training guide for the delivery position. <laughs> um, and I think that just by recognizing the reactions of customers when you, when you were delivering the product at 3 a.m. and seeing how happy they were that they were getting to order such good food at that hour, um, it just drove us and gave us more um, motivation to, to serve a bigger demographic. Uh, we we kind of, there were nights, and I'm not kidding, it was extremely hard. Like when we first opened this, Going back to stories and breaking laws, like I didn't have my driver's license. <laughs> I was delivering for the first year without a license. Oh my god! I'll be, I'll be <laughs> having to learn how to parallel park behind a city bus because I needed to get the order to the client. You know what I mean? Oh. I didn't even. I would be driving the. Actually, I was driving a car once that had no had on out of province plates. It had no insurance, and like the parking lights weren't working on it. And I remember I got stopped in front of the <laughs> restaurant by the police and they kind of just looked at me like, what are you doing? And then I was able to get out of it somehow, some way by just trying to persuade the police officers into the restaurant. Did you give them a burger? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh so in our minds, when we were out in the streets in those couple years, like everyone was a client to us. So oh, man. we were awesome. able to approach anyone 
Like if I got into a taxi, that taxi driver was going to be a client by the end of the ride. You know what I mean? This is before Uber. <laughs> so when did you guys get your, your newest location? Was there a location between this, this location where you're at uh, in the story and where you are today? So yeah, we, um, because it was only a 550 square foot location, we quickly knew that we were going to outgrow that spot and fit like before we could do something like we were not going to be able to serve our customers basically. So we found another location. There's two major universities in, uh, in Montreal. Um, one is McGill, the other one was Concordia. And we found one luckily across the street from Concordia and it was 1200 square feet. So it was double the size of the location we were in now. Um, and we said, Hey, let's, let's go for it. It's right there. We know we're not going to be able to service our customers that much longer here. Um, with the equipment and, and the space that we had. So we went right into it. Yeah. There, there's a backstory to that, which uh, I think that we got to touch on too, is yeah. we knew that in our third year, we needed another location, but we were also just blinded by our own success. You know what I mean? We were looking at what we were doing on a yearly um, sales basis. And then we were realizing that we were doing about like, $1,800 a square foot out of this place. So we thought we were restaurant gurus at the time. You know what I mean, we, we then were kind of blinded by our own success in the sense that we were like, all right, this concept can be franchised easily. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we reached out to franchise developers and we started to meet people who were in the franchising industry. And, um, we were sold with this one development company that told us like, Oh, we're going to bring your concept from five to 10 to 20 to 40 units in three years. So Rob and I, we made the decision. We were going to work with a uh, development company to help us um, scale the business. And it was a money grab. Like these, we were so ignorant to see that like the business was not ready to franchise whatsoever. Well, why was wasn't it ready? What parts of it made well, it not just, ready? Like, there was no infrastructure. Uh, if you walk down to a 550 square foot basement location with no aesthetics, with no design, with no engineering behind it, like, and then at the same time, you don't even have an established POS system to uh, get the right reports on. There was just so many it was just an immature business at the beginning. Okay. Um, so I don't think the brand was ready. And the development company we were working with said that they needed to prove that this concept was um, going to work and we needed to have more units in downtown Montreal. So we did, we applied the same um, thought process when with, we did with the first location, we put up the second one right next to Concordia university university, excuse me. And we started to operate two locations. And um, at, I mean, we were able to expand our delivery zone, right? We were able to get more exposure to our brand because we had plenty of walk-by traffic at the new location. But we didn't do the right research at that location. And let me tell you, the problems we experienced at that walk-down basement, 550-square-foot location, they only got worse at the 1,200-square-foot location. Yeah. So... so- Dive into that. Yeah, I mean, being in a basement location, we only realize it later, but we're in Montreal, Canada, so the winters get really cold here. And sometimes the restaurants on top of us would close down in the winter breaks and they would turn their heating off. So every single year, we're talking about like every year in the the winter, the pipes would burst. 
Oh, and we would get water leaking down because we're in the basement from top to bottom and our ceilings would cave in. Yeah, and try operating two locations where both of them have the ceilings coming down. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so we definitely learned the hard way um, by operating in these two basement locations. And not only that, if the pipes weren't freezing above us, we would get water coming up from the bottom when, when the city would have like a backlog and all our, like we could, we had to close the restaurant every yeah, time. It'd be like four inches of, of, of water coming into our restaurant. And like, so we had to, that we had to close, um, we had to close down those nights. And I guess we were still trying to focus on the franchising component of our business. And we were able to, they were able to attract a certain uh, clientele for franchising because our brand was so well known in the student community. So at the time we were approached by um, some of our customers even, and you know, the franchise development company told us, Oh, these are the, they've screened them. They're the perfect candidates to open up our first franchise. And so then we started looking um, for a third location and we actually found one after about four months. We, with the same thought process, we grabbed a smaller location again, which was, I think, only about 800 square feet. Yeah. And they built themselves a small little location next to the French university called University of Montreal. And, um, you know, we were sold on the fact that like, they were going to be putting in all the work that we were putting in. They were going to be bringing in family members to work on the restaurant. So they were telling us all the right things at the time. But... After we opened and, you know, they operated their franchise for about um, three months, we quickly realized that they were not the right candidates to open up what, a business. What made them not the right candidates? Well, they were operating their business with uh, 70% labor. <laughs> yeah, they, with the promises that they made at the beginning that they'd be there all the time, they, they were still in school also at the time, but they said that it wouldn't. Like that, the restaurant would still be a priority, but it was never the case, and that's why their labor was always so high. And instead of putting in like forty to fifty hours a week each, they would only put in maybe ten each, if not five. And these so were students as well. They were students, yeah. They were students at the same time. They in were graduate. Year. Yeah, they're in the last year, and um, you know, I think one of the uh, the main issues that we had was obviously. Um, on our end, we were trying to provide the correct infrastructure to support a franchise. So on our end, we were making investments on satellite kitchens. Yeah. We had um, come out with a commissary kitchen, which was going to supply the three stores at the time. So we were financially kind of taking all our profits we had made in the first couple of years and, and putting into this, into our franchising infrastructure, which proved to not work. Um, we thought it, we thought of it as, you know, we were going to be dropping a certain amount of money on franchising. So this will be our, our, our postgraduate master's certificate. We'll yeah. get it in, we'll get it in, in a, a master's in franchising. So I'm curious, uh, knowing what you know now with that money that you made, how would you have invested it knowing what you know now? Um, into the proper appliances, yeah. into a proper location, into so one single location that's proper, which is exactly ended up, which is what exactly ended up happening for us. Um, so because we had, we ended up having those two locations. The franchise didn't work. 
we still had the commissary kitchen. Um, we had to close that franchise down. They kept losing money and they weren't too happy with the way things are going. And we weren't too happy as well. We were getting complaints from customers that we knew very well from other two restaurants. And when they came to the Coats and Edge location, um, they wouldn't get that same service. and They wouldn't get the same appreciation um, that they got when they were at the other two locations. So, so what was the big lesson there as far as the people go? Like, What would you do differently with people if you're bringing new people on board? New people on board, definitely screen them longer, have them work in our restaurants, which they never did, which is mandatory now. Uh, I mean, we didn't continue in the franchising route, but moving forward, they, we definitely have to have them work at other occasions to see how they handle situations and how they work with other employees as well. Yeah, I mean, today we would never do that. Um, we learn, I mean, as businessmen, you learn um, from your mistakes and you learn not to repeat those mistakes. So what so. were those biggest mistakes? If you could label, if you could draw out, bullet point those big mistakes, what would they be? If I could bullet point the big mistakes, um, uh, I would never, it just straight out, flat out, I would never franchise my business. <laughs> <laughs> So a lot of people have a lot of success with franchise. So bullet pointing the the mistakes is like for one, the franchise development company we were with provided us with outdated like franchise agreements that didn't even hold up in the court of law. So um, we were looking at um, franchise agreements from the 1990s. Okay. And then even before we had opened up that franchise, I felt like the brand was getting out of our hands. They wanted us to redesign our logo. They wanted us to, uh, incorporate this aesthetic into our second um, location that really did wasn't in line with our first one. So it was just like something that you learn over time that it's really not the type of um, approach that you would take. I mean, we all have certain personalities and franchising is very, uh, it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's very straight. Like there's no bullshit. You have to be on them every single day. You have to be um, sending in people to do spot checks. And like, there's just certain components of franchising that I don't think um, we want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I hear it's not for everybody. So uh, when were you having this conversation with it? Like when was this franchise going down? Was that three years into the operation? Yeah, it was three years into the operation. So we're going back six years ago. Uh, yeah, so I think we built the first franchise. It was 2013. 2013, yeah. Okay, so five years ago. Um, where, where have you come from then? Where are you now? What big things have you worked on now? What were the big evolutionary points for you at that point to where you are now? So the evolution, um, because because we had those two restaurants at the time and we saw when when one restaurant had like a leak or like a ceiling collapse that we would only be able to operate out of one location and because we were able because we were delivery and we were able to set up the phone number that the customer wouldn't know that if they were calling for example our Concordia location and we were only open in McGill the customer wouldn't know that they would still think the food was even coming from that Concordia location so we saw that we were able to handle um, two stores kind of in one. And we definitely saw the advantages there because all, we didn't need to hire any more cooks. All we had to do is hire a little bit more drivers. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, following that, we it was 2014 at the time. The franchise location had been officially closed and 
we needed to either re-sign our lease at our first location or not re-sign it. So um, at this time, we finally took the advice of friends and family, and we all decided we're going to close down the very first Chef on Call location that we had, and we're going to operate out of our second location next to Concordia, the uh, 1,200-square-foot spot. And we, we, we did this at the right time. We closed our first location in April, right when students were finishing their exams. So we were under the impression we were going to find um, a new location during that summer. And it, we thought for sure we could find something within four months and we were going to be able to build it and serve the um, student body when they return for the next uh, fall semester. And at that time, we were looking, we would find a location, and then it wouldn't go through. And then we'd get outbidded by someone else. Or, you know, we faced so many challenges finding a location. It actually took us uh, 16 months to find another location. So this was like 2015, or sorry, 2013? Right around there, yeah, 2015. Um, So we had been operating all our business during that year in 2015 out of our uh, second location. And Rob and I were constantly uh, just going after every for rent sign in in a commercial spot that made sense for our concept. And, um, you know, that's part of the journey. Like we thought we had found a location that would have made sense. It was on one of the main uh, nightlife strips and it had a parking lot right outside of it, so we could dispatch our vehicles quite easily. And um, because the location had been inactive for longer than 12 months, they actually ended up losing their um, restaurant permit. So we had gone through the lease negotiations, and then we had gone to um, talk to the city about starting our drawings and whatnot. And then uh, they had told us, actually, no. The permit is not allowed, and you cannot have a restaurant at that location. So we were back to the drawing board after negotiating on our location oh, for about four weeks. So let me ask you this. Where are you today? Because we've got to start thinking about getting to the speed round. I kind of want to uh, round this off with finding out where you are today. Maybe you can leave us some, uh, I guess, some yes. advice or maybe some final thoughts before moving into the, the so speed round. At the like, All the stars aligned one day. And um, funny enough, uh, we were able to find a location that fitted all our needs and suited everything that we needed to put in there. In a, uh, it was about a two-minute walk or stone's throw away from our very first location. So it was right still uh, in that McGill student ghetto area. And um, we, it was an off-campus student residence, a private one, not run by the university. And we had known about them having a first floor where they had their student uh, common room where people would be playing pool or, you know, playing just Tony or um, ping pong. And when we first saw the location, we're like, yeah, this would work, but are they going to forego their student common room for the entire student residence? And, um, we had reached out to the owner of the uh, building, and when we reached out, we finally got a hold of him, and we had mentioned what our business was called, and luckily enough, the landlord had 
been coming to the city and arriving late at night. So he was fully aware of our service because he actually would arrive and then walk to our very first location to get uh, his night fix, his nice. night fix food. And then uh, he immediately knew our concept. He's like, you know what? Let's do it. I think it's going to be great. I'll have a cafeteria to serve uh, my tenants. And um, I think it's going to be something that would work. And we were able to negotiate a lease. It took a while. Uh, we were able to get the right leasehold improvement allowance that we needed. And it was a shell at the time. So we had to build our restaurant from scratch. And that was new to us. I mean, we had known all the mistakes we made in the past. We weren't going to repeat them. So there was no more um, purchasing uh, certain pieces that were secondhand. Uh, we, we invested in the deep fryers with automatic filters on them. Uh, we went from having a 24 inch grill to stepping that up to a 48 inch grill. Uh, we had a six, we went, turned our four burner range into a six burner range with a flat top and a salamander above that. Um, so we knew going into this that we had the proper amount of sales to, invest a lot more on our previous locations because we were going in it with the idea that we were had about 1.8 million in sales behind us to um, start with and hit the ground running. Uh, and then we also made the right investments in a new point of sales system, which we integrated a, uh, a dispatching software for our driver department. What um, system did you guys go with? Maybe we can wait, wait for later. Actually, we can get into that later if you want. Well, yeah, I'll talk about the yeah. And then we um, we were able to, you know, integrate our online ordering platforms into our point of sale system to automate everything. Um, and what other improvements did we make? We had we never had a rational oven before, which definitely helped us out. Before that, we were doing our bacon and our chicken in our six burner range oven, and even though we had a timer, sometimes they would be distracted and, and it would burn. With our new rational oven, everything is is pretty preset and very automated. Is that a combi oven as well? Yes, exactly. exactly. Okay. So, it's so a lot less did. energy. You guys are probably saving money in the energy bill. I'm imagining is everything is much more moist. Exactly. Yeah, we're exactly. saving money on the energy. We're saving money on on the spoilage. Even labor is better. It takes it takes us now ten minutes, but it would take us like hours to do in the past. Yeah, and and I think part of what we're talking about is at the beginning of when we opened this restaurant, like we were so uneducated in what was available in terms of restaurant appliances. And it took us like six years of really um, researching and figuring out what was going to, what appliance was going to work best with our type of menu. You know what I mean? And that goes back to understanding that like when we were trying to franchise, like when I'm talking about infrastructure, we didn't. We had certain menu items that didn't have the right um, restaurant equipment for to cook them. You know what I mean. So it was just a matter of really looking at every single layer of our business and talking about with our um, mentor, which is Rob's father now, Erwin, talking about how we can improve that angle of the business. Mm. And that goes back to how we introduced the online ordering um, platform and we integrated it through API files on the back end. Like that one um, new feature, it really changed their entire uh, front of house um, focus because before when an online order had printed, it would print off a different printer. They would have to 
um, input that bill into our point of sale system so that everything was streamlined through this one cloud-based system. And that was in itself, like we had one employee, one team member just doing that action all night. And um, once we had done this, that person's time was freed up and it just, I guess people have a lot of challenges sometimes justifying the expense to get the right tools. But when you get the right tools, you know, it might be more upfront, but the time you save, the money you save, uh, with the you know, it all compounds, and you you get your money back, and at the end of the day, you're putting out a better product because of it. That's so. a huge piece of advice right there for sure. Definitely, if, even though it's more expensive, like for example, that combi can go up to like forty six thousand dollars. If you space it out over the time that you're going to use it, you'll see the savings even yep. within the first two years. Long term investments pay off. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Any final thoughts before going to the speed round? Um, I think that, you know, for us, when we opened our business, we opened it in such a small parameter. It really taught us how to work in small areas. So that gave us an advantage when we were, you know, trying to apply that little tiny 40 square foot space to this new 3000 square foot spot that we had, we were able to really come out with, um, uh, very, 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 uh, a training program that was very easy to, to, it was simplistic and it was in, in, in its nature. So everybody can grasp it quite well. Beautiful. Great conversation, guys. Uh, really enjoyed this. We're gonna take a quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Everyone loves processing invoice after invoice. It's the best. <laughs> Not really. Just the sight of a filing cabinet is enough to make you sick, right? It doesn't have to be that way. With Sorcery, there's no more manually processing invoices by hand and no more cutting check after check. With Sorcery, you can organize all of your accounts digitally, scan your invoices, and pay your vendors with just one click. It is easy. Sorcery offers fully managed accounts and statements reconciliation, so you no longer spend hours on the phone with your vendors and banks that stinks. You now have the peace of mind knowing your accounts are being taken care of, and you can get back to work doing what you love, running unstoppable restaurants. Go to GetSorcery.com, that's G-E-T-S-O-U-R-C-E-R-Y.com, or call one 800 Six six eight three zero zero six nine one. Mention Restaurant Unstoppable and receive ten percent off your first three months. And say goodbye to your old filing cabinet and hello to the digital world with Sorcery AP Automation. To be unstoppable, most restaurants require a little extra capital from time to time. It happens, right? Uh, when you need funding to like renovate or buy equipment or manage cash flow, you don't have time to just track down financial statements or wait weeks for a decision. And that is where Cabbage can help. Cabbage gives small businesses access to a line of credit of up to $150,000. And if you apply online, you'll get a decision right away, which is pretty awesome. Since Cabbage is a line of credit, you can take the exact amount you need. You'll never have to reapply to take out additional loans, and you only pay for the funds you use. Yeah, you're impressed, and I haven't even gotten to the impressive part. Cabbage has helped more than 130,000 businesses from every industry with over $4 billion in funding. Like, awesome. 
Cabbage is A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau and was named a Forbes Top 100 company not once, but twice. Check out Cabbage at Cabbage with a K dot com slash restaurant unstoppable and you'll get a $50 gift card when you qualify. That's Cabbage, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash restaurant unstoppable. Line of credit is subject to credit approval. See terms and conditions. All Cabbage business loans are issued by Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member, FDIC. All right. So the first question I have for you is what are your it factors, habits, traits, characteristics you believe most contribute to your success? I guess we'll start with Rob. What's your what's your it factor? I'd say our it factor is being our food being homemade, fresh, and our customers do taste the love and the quality in that all the time. And it makes them come back more. They can't get our dipping sauces anywhere else. So that is another huge it factor. And how to treat the customers and treat your employees as well. Beautiful. Gabe, anything to uh, add to that? I agree with everything he said. Beautiful. Uh, what are your biggest weaknesses? I'd say that our one part of one of our business biggest weaknesses at the beginning was we're friendly guys. We're, we're, um, we're outspoken and, and we like to be friends with the people we work with. And when you're friends with your uh uh, teammates, although it does could lead to issues down the line, I think that probably was one of the weaknesses in the beginning. We wanted to be friends with every single person that was working with us, and it does lead to issues. Mm. What is one question or thing you look for during the interview process? So one thing we look for when we are interviewing is their personality, and if it would mesh with like the current team members and staff we have now. Uh, we want someone that's going to add a positive experience in the workforce. And yeah, I think when we're looking at new candidates, it, the, I don't measure whether or not um, I, I don't measure their um, skill set on like what places they've worked or what have you. It's, it's all about like the personality and when, whether or not they're going to synergize with the rest of the team. And if they have a bubbly personality, um, it usually means that they're they're going to have a positive aura about them, and that only helps um, when you're working, you know, eight nine hour shifts. What's a current challenge today, and how are you dealing with it? So our biggest challenge today is um, we're trying to open a new restaurant in Ontario, and that we learned is completely different than the, the province of Quebec. There's so many new laws and so many different things that we have to learn now going into Ontario and it's starting again from completely fresh. We don't have that like test department project right now. Yes. So that's going to be a huge challenge for us. And again, to get that word out um, where Gabe and I weren't involved in the student scene. Yeah. I think that's going to be the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge is, is when we open up in this new market, it's, it's in Waterloo, Ontario. So we carefully selected that market based on them. It having two uh, universities in the small uh, market. So um, not being the same age as students when we, when we get this off the ground and not being as connected to that community, we're trying, we're going to try our best. We're, we're building a restaurant that's almost the same size as what we have in Montreal. So we're basically taking, we're, we're risking everything again and doing it and we're going to do it all over. But one thing I love about this time, uh, and this did not come out in the interview, you're, you're, 
getting people from within, right? People from within your network, within your restaurants, and you're taking them with you. You're providing opportunity to them. Did I did I hear that right? Yeah, for sure. Um, we were lucky enough to have our savior. Her name is Tori, Tori Menez, and um, she is has been our GM for the past uh, four or five years, and we're happy that we're bringing her on as an equity partner in our new venture in Waterloo. Yeah. So she'll be moving there with uh, myself. And that's the way I think it should be done. I think the whole idea of a franchise, it just grows too fast. It's too transactional. When you promote people from within you, when you provide opportunity, when people have a sense of skin in the game and a sense of, you know, they're, they're already a part of your, your, your culture that you, you molded them from the very beginning. You know, it's an extension of the brand. It's so much more natural that way. Exactly. Yeah. So All right. We're, we're really happy and pleased to be doing that. Awesome. Uh, so share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. One, I mean, we've taught our team to always like how to, there's so many, um, for example, customers will get customer callbacks and how to deal with those situations. Every person is so different when they're calling back, whether it's me for a drink or something was wrong with their burger. Um, you have to know how to handle those situations accordingly. And there's not one set way. Um, so just, I guess, from working there and then watching how we dealt with the customers, they were able to kind of pick up on that. Yeah. It's not like a, like when a customer calls back, it's not like our team members are busting out a script or anything. They just have to understand how to um, talk to the client. Listen, right? And if the client is... Usually if you mess up on a client's order and it's delivery, they become hangry. When you're dealing with someone who's hangry, they're right. Everything is right. They have to be right. And we're going to try our best to get, we're going to prioritize their order and put it to the front of house and try our very best to get it there as quick as possible. Um, And then, yeah, it's just when, when our teammates see how we deal with those situations, they know they have the flexibility to have a conversation and to try to read the client as best as possible. Uh, what's one book we must read to become a better person or restaurant owner? Uh, start with why. Mm. I've read. Have you read that? It's uh, absolutely. Fast. Yeah. What's the biggest lesson from that book? Just, you know, you got to take things slow and you got to understand the whole situation before you make judgment on it. You want to ask questions to get all the answers, and you're not gonna you're not gonna get the answers off one question. Rob, do you have anything to add to that? No, it's always um, it's always yeah. Take like know where the other person is coming from before you you make any decisions and and work from there. First, seek to understand, then seek to be understood. One of those seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen R. Covey. Great. Probably, I probably found that book off one of your podcasts. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great book. And that book is on audio or in audible. Uh, so if you head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable, you can get that book for free and you're supporting the show. If you have not already become an audible member. So share an online resource or tool that you're leveraging. Uh, we use Slack to communicate. All right. And uh, what is one piece of technology you've adopted within the four walls of your business? This is more tangible, a uh, hard service uh, that has increased operations. So we, we've even switched uh, from printout receipts in the kitchen to kitchen screens. 
Um, with the high volume, we've definitely seen a huge improvement in the kitchen in terms of getting orders out faster. It also gives them like uh, average order time. So even in the kitchen, they're trying to work to get that, that number down. Whereas before when we had the receipts, when we had a rush, we'd have like a whole pile up of receipts print out and they wouldn't even touch them. And then when they did come to put them on the board, they'd be all unorganized and orders that were being placed like an hour ago were still being left behind. Now everything is right in front of their face and they see like, okay, this order is getting late. Let's get on that. So it's definitely helped improve us a lot. And then another uh, component which we introduced, which helped our labor costs uh, at the end of the night was the synchronization of our uh, wireless payments that we do at the door. When a driver arrives back on the, at the restaurant, they simply just put their wireless debit machine on a portal and it automatically syncs the payments into our uh, point of sale cloud. So I'm curious. I want to kind of get into this technology. It looks like you guys are leveraging a lot of cool stuff. So you mentioned uh, Slack for communication, KDS, your kitchen display unit. Uh, what POS system are you using that and what other uh, add-ons are you leveraging in conjunction with your POS? Yeah, so we, we switched from uh, something called Experio to something called Maitre D, which is international. Uh, and Maitre D, we added on the dispatch, the delivery dispatch function. Um, as well as the API that they that, that's a new thing for them that integrates our online ordering system with our point of sale so we don't have to double input the orders yeah. we spoke with Maitre D when we were looking to um, switch from our current from our old online ordering platform we spoke with them to find out who they were working with so that we could have everything under one roof and um, when they introduced us to a team of Quebec coders, they were our age. They understood our concept. They understood our target market. So we were able to kind of customize uh, a white label app to our brand. Um, and that has been game changing for us. We introduced a, a loyalty program for our clients where we kind of have like a, a digital currency in the sense where every time you place an order through that app, you're given kickback and chef coins. Uh, and you can later use those chef points to trade in uh, for orders. And this is all through Maitre D? This is all through working with Maitre D. Um, yeah. And the um, developing company we're using is called iShop Food. iShop Food. Cool. I'll have those links in the show notes. Uh, all right. So the last question, are you guys ready for it? Sure. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for the betterment of this industry. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? One would be uh, perseverance. And at the beginning, it was very tough. I mean, we didn't take a salary for the first few years, but we always saw that the light at the end of the tunnel. So just with the progression and growth and, and every week we'd have like a higher, uh, like we'd beat our sale record from the previous week. We just knew that it would, it would, it would get there eventually and that we'd be able to get that past that break even point. So perseverance, if you see the brighter picture at the end, that's one of them. Perseverance. And for us, I mean, delivery has become a part of our life. Like delivery is everything to us. So I want to make sure if we did leave, we left our impact on the delivery industry in Montreal. Beautiful. Uh, so that's two, right? Perseverance. Yeah. And then uh, the last one is, I guess, kind of the, the advancement in technology. I always kind of look out there and, and see 
what's happening in, in the growth in technology because that can definitely improve your business a lot. For sure. It's becoming more publicly available. Um, when we first came out with this concept, we had to custom code our website, our online ordering platforms, and that led to so many function errors um, within our operations. So when you are looking to introduce a certain piece of technology, really look out there to see what work was going to work best and what is going to fit your budget and then see, you know, is it, are you going to end up saving money off this in the long run? So it's just a matter of making sure that you really do plan out every uh, purchase and see how it pays off. Beautiful. Rob, Gabe, thank you guys so much for taking the time to share your story, to share your advice. This was a great conversation. We wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator? Somebody you guys admire in this industry. Maybe somebody who's leading in Montreal who needs to be made an example of. Call them out. I'm calling out uh, our good friend Eunice from Uniburger. They have the best burger in Montreal. They don't deliver as good as ours do. (laughs) (laughs) Uniburger is one of our close friends and he has a special concept there. So you should be speaking with him. And then Rob has one other person to call. Yeah. And Tori too. I mean, she's just been, uh, she's always on the ball and always learning what's going on in the restaurant industry. She actually is the one who introduced us to this show. Yeah, exactly. which is why uh, her out as well. That's awesome. Thank yeah. you, Tori. Appreciate she, that. She's going to be your own restaurant owner in about uh, two months. So exactly. I'm sure she'll have a lot of great input and feedback. Nice. Look out, Tori. I'm coming after you. And uh, who is it? Uni? Eunice. 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 <laughs> Look out, Eunice and Tori. We're going to get you on the show someday. All right. Uh, and I guess that's all. Just let the folks at home know. How can we connect? How can we follow what you're doing? Uh, you can visit our website at chefoncalldelivery.com. Uh, you can see everything we're about over there. Or you can check out our Instagram handle at chef underscore on underscore call. Or you can uh, check out our FB page at chef on call MTL. Nice. This is episode 494. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 494 for those links. And guys, just thank you so much again for sharing your story. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Oh, thanks, Eric. We really appreciate the time. Too. <laughs> yeah, thank you My so much. My pleasure. Cheers. All right. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Rob, Gabe, thank you guys so much for sharing your story. And I love this idea of just starting where you can. For Gabe and Rob, that was their dorm room apartment. And there's a lot to learn or a lot to take from that, though. This idea of testing your concept. You don't know if your idea is going to have traction in the market. So just start where you can. Test the market with as little overhead as possible. And that's exactly what they did. They started it in their dorm room with a concept and they just, you know, they just got the ball rolling and you'll find out pretty fast if you got something or or you don't. But with this approach, at least you're not, you know, you're, you're not wasting time and valuable money. You know, you're just going to start as simply and as, leanly as possible. And I think that's a beautiful example of how they did that today. Uh, you might have to break a few laws in the process too, but eh, who's, who's judging, right? Anyway, <laughs> uh, not that I'm promoting that, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. And they did what they had to do. Uh, I also love this idea of, uh, how they started with the ideas of creating a, 
the the franchise operation. But one lesson I've learned that is that you know food makes a a, a, good, a good restaurant. Branding makes a good restaurant. Concept makes a good restaurant. But really, at the end of the day, what makes an amazing restaurant is culture. And culture, at the end of the day, is all boiled down to just who people are, who you are. And you can't just plug random people into your concept your brand with the food that you make and expect it to perform at the same level. You have to create these people. You have to mold these people. And that's why I believe the best way to scale a business is slowly over time, letting your people determine your growth. When you have amazing people who deserve opportunity and they're, they're running out of opportunity within those four walls. That's when you open your next location. And these guys seem to be doing it the right way now. And I'm just happy to hear that. Two great guys here started with no experience and just doing some awesome stuff. Great success story. And if you guys can think of an incredible success story, somebody who needs to be needs to be made an example of here in Restaurant Unstoppable, please put them on my radar. You can reach me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, Instagram, Twitter, Eric Cacciatore, Facebook slash restaurant unstoppable. Keep those five star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. We're up to 135 reviews. Thank you so much if you've left one in the past. And I'm doing one-on-one calls now, so I have a pretty good idea of what it takes to make it in this industry, and I can connect you with, with a lot of people that specialize where wherever you may be struggling. So if you want to set up a one-on-one brainstorming coaching call with me, hit me up. Uh, the, there's a link in the show notes. You can head over to any episode, and you'll find the link in the show notes. Uh, this is episode 494, so you can find that link in there, as well as a, a link to everything we discovered in today's conversation. Uh, and then lastly, guys, I'm taking the podcast back on the road, and I'm super excited to share this news with you. So as you're listening to this, I will be in Washington, D.C. So if you're in the Washington area, uh, you want to meet up, you want to grab a beer or a coffee, uh, if you can think of anybody in these areas and you can connect me with them, please, 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 please reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. I'm going to be in the DC area until probably uh, around the first or second uh, of July. And then I'm going to be maybe trickling my way towards Texas. So if you're between DC and Texas, uh, if you know anybody who needs to be made an example of in that wide range, let me know. Maybe I'll make a stop along the way. And uh, after Texas, who knows? But uh, yeah, I'm loving this and I want to meet you. So reach out to me. All right, guys, that's all for today. Thanks so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out. <laughs>